So today we are uh, picking up here with the actual Sermon on the Mount. Last week I did kind of an intro and kind of talked to you a little bit about um, the idea that when we hear something, we have to be obedient to it and challenged you because I think there are a lot of times where we would say, hey, that's a great teaching or we learn something in our head, but we don't let it translate to our heart, translate to our actions, translate to our obedience, right? We just kind of continue to take in another sermon, take in another podcast, read another book, go to another Bible study, and we just learn more stuff, but it doesn't actually change the way that we live. Um, And I was struck this week um, by uh, theologian John Stott, who, uh, this is not in your notes here, Brian, not in your slides here, but this is what he said. He said the the danger with the Sermon on the Mount he was talking about, he said the Sermon on the Mount is probably the best known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably it is least understood and certainly it is the least obeyed. It is the nearest thing to a manifesto that has ever been uttered. For for it is Jesus' own description of what he wanted his followers to be and to do. Okay, So the the sermon that we're about to look at is Jesus' main teaching kind of all put together. By the way, when Jesus taught, he taught like a million different topics and none of them were expounded upon Uh, significantly in this sermon, and he taught for as long as it took. People were there all day long. You guys are lucky to only have to deal with 25 minutes of me droning on. Jesus taught like so much that people, when they left, they probably felt like they were drinking from a fire hose and probably catching like a tenth of what he was actually really saying and understanding even less of it, because later on, even the disciples would go to Jesus and be like, hey, yeah, I've just been thinking about that thing you said. Could you explain to us what this means? And he would have to expound even further on what it on what any of it means. And so as we look at kind of, and we break down this, main, the danger would be that we look at it and we learn something in our head, but we don't let it translate to our heart. We don't let it translate to our obedience. We don't let it translate to our lives. And so I want to make sure that we're aware of that and thinking about that as we move uh, forward with this sermon. Um, and so I want to start just by kind of giving you the lay of the land and, and helping you understand what Jesus is stepping into as he teaches this this ministry. And Israel during this time was very fragmented. They're under occupation of Rome. That's a problem for all Jews. They don't want to be under the occupation of Rome. But the way that they were, they're dealing with this occupation is different. And it breaks down into four categories. And I've shared this with you before, but it's worth noting again, because there's a lot of confusion. The average person who is part of Israel is like very confused on what am I actually supposed to be doing as a believer in God? What does it look like for me to live this thing out and do this thing? Because there's this group of people telling me one thing, and this group of people telling me the other, and this group. And there was about four main ways of looking at how to deal with Rome and how to, how to kind of walk out your faith, right? The first was the Pharisees. They're kind of famously in there. Jesus sort of spars with the Pharisees quite a bit. You know, it, Jesus comes from a a tradition that is very pharisaical. The way that he teaches, the way that he trains, the way that he brings on disciples like a rabbi would, he has kind of a pharisaical uh, uh, bend to how he teaches, but he is the hardest on the people that he is most like, right? There's a tradition of the way the Pharisees learned and did things that Jesus almost kind of uh, takes on and does as well, but he does it in a way where it's a, a sort of a truer version, and he's the hardest on them. And I think the Pharisees, they would have had uh, a spiritual solution to deliverance from Rome, waiting for God to bring their Messiah about. 
So they were kind of searching the scriptures, and they were kind of in all of those uh, prophecies, and they had kind of focused in on all the, all the Old Testament to look for and be ready for the Messiah, and they were kind of waiting for the Messiah. And even though when the Messiah came, they were unable to identify it. They were always studying, always searching. They had this um, tradition of learning and being taught and being discipled. You know, if I were going to assign a song to them, right, it would be the Beatles. I'm going to give you songs that go with each of these four, because that's what I want to do this week, so just deal with me. Uh, and it would be, all you need is, yeah, except not love for them, law, right? <laughs> all you need is law, right? That was, that's the Pharisees, man. They're like, we got the Torah, we got the, the 500, 600 laws, we know what we're doing, we got, we, we, like, we're going to do it perfectly, we're going to make sure that everything we do looks exactly right, we're going to focus in on our behavior and make sure our behavior is completely modified to do exactly what God wants us to do. There was something going on in them where their heart wasn't in the right place, that they were technically correct, right? How many of you guys were or have one of these children or were one of these children growing up where you like learned the rules and then you were like, technically, I'm correct, and you would follow the rules technically perfectly, but you'd still be yelled at by your parents or if you're a parent, you'd still want to yell at the kid because they don't understand why it is you ask them to do what you're, what you're doing. Like, we have these, these conversations in our, our own house about whether or not we're allowed to play video games all night. Apparently, this is not a settled issue when it comes to being 11. Um, and so we have conversations. I was like, hey, listen, buddy, I'm not telling you that you can't do this or do this or do that. I'm just saying it's bad for you to be looking at a screen when you're trying to go to sleep. You've got to put those things away so you can go to bed. So I, I find myself as a dad trying to explain the heart of why I'm trying to give the rule so that the rule will be followed and it won't be fought against. I think that was the problem with the Pharisees. They're like, here's the rule, do the rule, that's it. Behave, behavior modification. Modify your behavior, do what I call you to do, and I'm not going to explain to you why, just do it because that's what it looks like. So there's the Pharisees. The second group of people that were in that day and age were the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a, a group of religious elites. They found their power, got their power by being born into positions or having wealth that allowed them to buy into positions. They were uh, outsized in the amount of them that were involved in the temple worship. And so they were very heavily involved in the temple. And they worked with Rome very carefully. So they were always kind of using Rome or trying to get money from Rome to be able to do things that would control the people and would preserve power for them. And they were the kind of people who were very focused on the first five books of the Bible but didn't believe in any of the prophets or any of their stuff. So their Messiah was not coming. They weren't looking for the Messiah. They weren't believing in prophets. They were people who had power and wanted to protect power. And so to the people, they looked at them as a means to an end. This would be like akin to a really terrible politician, right? Well, maybe all politicians fall into this category, right? Who would just see their position as a way to enrich themselves. It's like all politicians, right? They would see their as a way to, not to serve the people that they were serving, but to use the people as a means to an end so that they could, could garner power and favor they love the idea of connecting with uh, like high officials in Rome you know, in their structure and kind of connecting and trying to control the people on behalf of Rome so that they could kind of keep things status quo. So you had Pharisees, you had Sadducees. Okay, then you had these other two groups, the Essenes. The Essenes were people that moved out of town. They were like, oh, by the way, what was the song? I didn't give you a song for Sadducees. Yeah, what was the song? Um, the song for them were, was, I know I have it written right here. I want to make sure I do the right one. Yes, it's, uh, 
No, not yellow. They're not all Beatles songs, okay? Good Lord. Steve Miller Band, go on, take the money and run. Okay, I was trying to give you something from the 60s, something from the 70s. I'm going to go 80s and 90s here in a minute. Okay, so there are people that want to keep status quo. They want to keep their power. They want to stay in their position. The people are a means to an end. All right, the Essenes. The Essenes were people who said, hey, this is going to hell real quick and we're getting out of here. These are people that wanted to disconnect from culture because to them the culture was evil, the culture was uh, dirty, it would, it would make them unclean, they wanted to get as far away from it as possible, they wanted to preserve their holiness, but in, a, in, in sort of like a holiness, purity culture kind of way, they were very much tied into the idea that they were following all the, the right rules, right? They wanted to make sure that they were you know, being very modest and following you know, all these guidelines, but they wanted to do it separated from culture, separated from society, separated from the dirty Gentiles, right? They want to be around people that would make us unclean. We want to get out of town. And they actually moved out into the country. The Dead Sea Scrolls were written by the Essenes because they had kind of set up a community outside of the city, actually kind of near the Jordan River, right? And they had stored all these, these original manuscripts of Scripture. And so we have them to thank for having the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's actually kind of incredible what they were able to do. But they wanted to get out of town, and their idea was to just separate as much as possible. And so, for their song, anybody? I'm going I'm to keep getting terrible. Uh, this one's uh, Offspring, Got to Keep Them Separated. Right? Yeah? Offspring? Okay, there you go. Um, by the way, don't look into the theme of all these songs. They're all terrible, and I'm not trying to tell you the whole thing. I'm just pulling the one line out of there. All right, this is not going like the way I thought it would. <laughs> the fourth group were the zealots. Zealots were ready to overthrow everything with violence. They wanted a revolution. They wanted to make sure that they uh, killed the right person, lit the right fire, got the right group of people upset. They were always looking to instigate. They were always looking to, to stoke up a revolution, and they wanted to overthrow Rome with force. Now, there have been plenty of times when zealots had basically gotten something going and Rome had crushed them. And this would continue to be a problem for Israel because they would continue to basically be a thorn in Rome's side and Rome eventually would crush the Jews because of the uprisings that the zealots began and did. Anybody interested in picking this one out? I went with Rage Against the Machine. Yeah. 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 Killing in the name of? Yes. Some of those who work forces are the same who burn crosses. I'm just throwing that out there. Like, don't go listen to Rage Against the Machine. I'm not telling you it's great. I'm not telling you you should. Although, every once in a while, there's a Rage Against the Machine day uh, in, my, in my, my life. But uh, the zealots were passionate, were revolutionaries. They wanted to start fights. They wanted to start a war. They wanted to use violence. So in this situation that Jesus steps into, you have all these four different groups of people who are kind of all, Israel's fractured, and they're all telling people, do different stuff. Pharisees are like, hey, do the law. That's all you got to worry about. Sadducees are like, hey, don't worry about anything. We got this, right? The zealots are like, hey, let's start a war, right? The Essenes are like, hey, let's get out of town. Let's get away from everything. Let's separate from the culture. And so the average person was probably really super confused. They're like, it would be great if a teacher would just come along and just tell us what it looks like to follow God. Like, we're actually kind of confused on what it looks like to follow God because you have these people in power saying one thing and these people saying another and these another and these another. And we're kind of pulled in, in different directions. You know, Jesus says when he looked out at the crowd, and this is the same crowd that he's preaching to, it said that he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were lost. 
They were just kind of like out there trying to figure out what it looked like to be God-fearing people, but were unsure what to do and who to listen to and who to take their direction from and what was the right thing. It was just very confusing to them. You know, and, and so as Jesus starts his ministry, he's on the outskirts of town, kind of north of, of Jerusalem, out far enough where you have regular people, like just on the edge of what it would look like to be in rural areas, places where people didn't have as much money, didn't have as much means, weren't as sophisticated, right? Just normal, everyday people. Jesus says Jesus looked at them and had compassion on them, and then he began to teach them. And his teaching is so straightforward, it's so clear, that it's like even like the youngest kid among us can grab hold of the stuff that Jesus teaches in his like, most complex teaching, and they can begin to apply it immediately. I mean, it's stuff like don't judge unless you want to be judged. It's stuff like, you know, like, hey, treat others the way that you want to be treated. It's, it's, it's stuff like, hey, don't, you know, you, you've heard it said one thing, I say another thing. You've heard it this way, here's another way, right? And so Jesus is kind of teaching everybody this very basic way of living, this very basic way, and he's almost resetting everyone's expectation and saying, hey, my kingdom is going to look very different than everything that you have been around. It doesn't look like these four sections, these four subsects of Israel. It doesn't look like the culture around you. It doesn't look like anything you're used to. It doesn't look like Rome. It doesn't look like, let me reset and let me help you understand what my kingdom looks like and what my way of life looks like. And so this is where the Sermon on the Mount begins. And I'm going to be in Matthew chapter 5. And the sermon is from Matthew chapter 5 to Matthew chapter 7. It was all given at one time. We're going to pick it up with verse 1. <clears throat> now then, Jesus saw the crowds. He went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. All right, so we don't exactly know if we really extrapolate this and take a look at it, exactly who and how Jesus is teaching here. It's a little bit confusing. Jesus goes up onto a mountainside. Now, some will look at that and say he went up on a mountainside because it's almost like a natural amphitheater where you could speak to a large group of people. If you could get above them and kind of speak to them, they'd be able to hear, right? And you'd be able to speak to a large thousands of people. It says just before this in chapter 4 that there were people coming from 10 cities around the area, some as far as like a day or two's journey to come and see who Jesus was and what he was teaching. And they were all kind of coming together. We know when Jesus fed people, he fed thousands of men and women and children. So he, the crowds could have been tens of thousands of people. And so at that time, for him to be able to speak to them would have been very difficult. He would have needed a natural sort of amphitheater. That's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is that he went up on this mountain and his disciples came close to him. And then he began to teach his disciples. This is a very different way of looking at it, a much more intimate setting where Jesus is teaching his disciples. And I actually think it's a combination of both. Okay? I think Jesus often taught in a way, and I'll show you another example, where he would teach his disciples very clearly, but he did it on purpose in a way that other people could hear it and be invited into it. Jesus often was like very clear with his disciples. Here's how you should live. But also people who were on the fence and who were kind of watching and paying attention, he was almost like drawing them in and asking them to kind of take the step into becoming a disciple. There's like a very clear delineation. Here's what you do if you're a disciple. The rest of you, you're welcome to join us anytime you're ready. 
You can come be a disciple. You can come get off the fence and you can come join us and this is what it looks like. Right? In Luke chapter 15, Jesus does, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 18. Nope, let me make sure I got this right. Luke chapter 15, Jesus does the, the, the same thing. He is uh, talking to a, a group of, uh, of people, of, and it says it was sinners and tax collectors, and then it says that there, there were some Pharisees who were like stepping just beyond the crowd who were judging him for being with these, these sinners and tax collectors. And it says Jesus tells them three stories. He says uh, there was, a, um, there was a, a shepherd who lost a sheep, and he, you know, he went and he found the sheep. He left the 99 and went and found the one. He came back and there was a there was a, a party because you know he found the one sheep. There was a celebration that happened and there was a woman who who had you know a certain amount of coins and she lost a coin and so she just stopped everything she was doing and she like lit a candle and she searched her whole house and she found the coin and there was like, this amazing you know excitement and she was she was celebrating because she found the coin and then there was a son there was a son who wanted to you know uh, take his inheritance and go and squander it on on licentious living. That's a nice you know Bible word for you licentious having license to do whatever you want, right? And he went and squandered it. And so as Jesus is telling this story, these three stories go together, and it's just about a lost thing that somebody finds, and there's a party. It's a really clear teaching. And as he's teaching that, I guarantee you, the sinners and the tax collectors are going, that's us, that's me, that's me. I'm the coin, I'm the sheep, right? I'm the son, I'm lost. I've spent the inheritance, I've done the thing, and I know that I shouldn't be welcomed back. As he tells that story, the, the father runs and throws his arms around the son, and welcomes him back into his home. And, the, you know, you can imagine the sinner and the tax collector is listening to Jesus teach, and they're probably, like, in tears. Like, yes, finally somebody is talking to me and inviting me into something. This is incredible. And then at the end, you know, he throws in that one extra little bit there. That, that story we always call the prodigal son. It should be about the prodigal sons. Because there's this other thing he throws in. He just tacks on at the end, and he goes... I can just imagine Jesus, he's teaching everybody. He's like, and his son comes back, and the father you know, throws the robe on him and gives him the ring and puts the sandals on his feet and hugs him and brings him home, and they kill the fatted calf, right? And the older son, and then he, you know, I can imagine him, he turns you know, and kind of engages the Pharisees who are standing just beyond the people and says, and then there was an older son who's slaving away for his dad. And he was really mad that they killed the fatted calf for his brother. He didn't want to come into the party. Like he's teaching two different groups of people in that moment. Almost like weirdly passive aggressive. I know that's a weird thing to say. Like Jesus has a passive aggressive streak in him sometimes when he's reading the group of people that's being all judgy and he just kind of calls them out and just sort of says that that way. He just kind of calls them out. He's just like, yeah, and there was an older son. And that guy was terrible. He wouldn't come to the party at all. He's out there pouting. Pouty pants, you guys over there, your pouty pants, right? Like that's the story he tells. He's telling two different group, two groups of people. It's the same story, but he's teaching two. I, I look at the Sermon on the Mount the same way. I think he's teaching his disciples what it looks like to be a Christ follower, but inviting the masses to come and join the discipleship journey. And we see this happen. A lot of them are there for the wrong reasons. They're there because there's free food, right? Good reason to go to any meeting, free food. And when that stuff stops, they stop being disciples. Right? There's a, a different level of discipleship that Jesus is looking for from his followers. And he's, he's inviting them in, but not all of them are going to make that decision to follow Jesus. Not all of them are going to make the decision to come all the way into the inner circle and hear the teaching and apply the teaching and obey the teaching. I think the, one of the biggest problems we have in this world that we live in, the culture that we live in, is we have a lot of Christians who know a lot of stuff who don't do any of it. we got people sitting on the outside. They're like, 
I'm going to inch closer to being a disciple, but the minute the food runs out, the minute the community isn't exactly what I hoped for, the minute the preacher stinks, like we're, we're still, by the way, we're still talking about the same sermon Jesus gave like millions of years ago. If I ever use one illustration, you're like, well, he's, I don't know, I heard that same illustration a couple months ago, so that guy's not even creative or interesting at all. Right? The minute something turns on us, we're like, we're out. Okay? And that's kind of what we are finding ourselves in as Jesus is teaching this. He's inviting people into discipleship, but he's saying it's going to cost you something. And so he says, let me paint a picture for what it looks like in my kingdom. And he starts by talking about what it means to be happy, what it looks like to be happy. <coughs> and we call this the Beatitudes. If you've ever, kind of your section probably calls it the Beatitudes. If you ever have talked about these these Beatitudes, the, where the word comes from, Beatitudes, this is going to sound like I made it up and I didn't. When you translate the word blessed to Latin, it's Beatitudos. It sounds like I'm trying to make a word Spanish, right? <laughs> El Beatitudos, right? But that's where we get the word Beatitudes. It really just means blessed. Or another translation of that is happy. And their version of happy is not the same as our version of happy. Our version of happy is very shallow, our version of happy is connected to our stomachs, connected to our ego, connected to our pleasure, connected to our whatever. Their version of happy was much more holistic, much more life-giving. Okay, so their version of happy doesn't exactly translate. You may have a translation that says happy is this, that, and the other thing. And we've translated it in the, in the NIV version we're reading from today is blessed or blessed is because that's a better way of putting it into our language. And so here's what he says. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And so he starts by saying, my kingdom isn't like what you expected it. Like, you have an idea of what a kingdom should look like. My kingdom looks nothing like the one that you think of when you think of the word kingdom or king. My kingdom, the ones who are blessed in my kingdom, the ones who are happy in my kingdom, are the ones who are poor in spirit, who are spiritually bankrupt. If we were going to translate poor in spirit, it would be spiritually bankrupt. People who have gotten to the end of their selves and realized that they don't have what it takes to fulfill the perfection of God. People who step back and say, I've done everything I can and I don't have enough and it's not going to work. And it says, when we get to a place like that, when we find that kind of humility where we're spiritually bankrupt, then we begin to mourn our own sin, we begin to mourn our own situation, we begin to mourn our own spiritual bankruptcy, and we're blessed because then at that point, God's ready to use us. Okay, I, I think a lot of times we look at this and we just think more, and we think we're going through a difficult season and God comes and comforts us. The word comfort here is the same word for the Holy Spirit. And so it literally says, those of us who are spiritually bankrupt and find ourselves in humility, and we say we give up, basically, at the end of that, when we mourn our own sin and we mourn our own situation, we're the ones who are blessed because now we can be comforted. We can, be, we can have the Spirit now as part of our lives to, to kind of come in and provide for that spiritual bankruptcy. Not necessarily what we read when we first look at it, but that's what it's, that's what it's saying to us. And you're going to see humility as a theme throughout all of these because Jesus, that was one of his main values, was humility. That was one of the things that defined him the most. And again, you're talking about putting a kingdom and a king upside down, everything being backwards, everything being exactly what you don't expect it to be. It's a king who's humble, 
who serves the people that he's come to, to rule over. It's something completely different and completely backwards. And he says, if you want to be blessed, if you want to be happy, you've got to get to the end of yourself. You know, Jesus tells this story in Luke 18. Again, Brian, this is not in your, in your slides. And this is what he says, and I just want to read it to you real quick. Uh, this is what Jesus says in Luke, Luke chapter 18. He tells a story. He says, To some, uh, some were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. He's talking about the Pharisees. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. He beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus' kingdom is much more about us having the right spiritual posture and heart towards our relationship with God than it is about us doing the right thing so that everybody can see it. He's like the guy that stands up in front of everybody and prays, by the way, that prayer, which is so arrogant. Glad I'm not everybody else. Glad I'm not that guy, right? Like, just can you imagine somebody doing that? That'd be so weird, right? He's saying that guy got his due. Everybody who was there and respected them and looked up to that guy, and wow, he's so holy, he's so whatever, that guy got everything that he was going to get out of that. There was no spiritual benefit to it. But the person who got to the end of themselves, who was spiritually bankrupt, who gave basically themselves up and said, God, you're in charge now. I throw myself on your mercy. That's the person who's blessed in the kingdom of God. And I, I want to stop and just ask you this question because a lot of times we read that and we think of somebody who's like homeless or strung out on drugs or like has made terrible choices and ruined their whole life. Like we think of the worst possible situations and we think good thing that we have this grace thing for people like that. And we compare ourselves to them and we think that we're way better than they are we probably would never say it. We probably would never put those words to it. But somewhere inside of us, we think, I'm better than them, and I'm really glad grace exists for them. But I just want you to stop, and I want you to think about this. You are way closer to the worst sinner that you can possibly think of than you are to the holiness of God. Period. You are spiritually bankrupt. You need Jesus and his grace and his mercy, and that is the only thing that will save you no matter how great you think you are. And you guys are all good people. You probably don't think you're that great. You probably, if I were to ask you a question, you'd be like, no, no, I'm not that great. But somewhere deep down, we know we're playing that comparison game. And we're thinking, good thing God doesn't have to forgive too much with me. I'm in control of a lot, and I can do a lot, and I'm going to be in control of all this, and I'll just let God do the rest. No, you're spiritually bankrupt. That's what it takes to be blessed in, in this scenario, in this kingdom that God has called us into. And so he says, blessed, poor in spirit, uh, those who mourn will be comforted. He goes on, he says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And meek isn't really a word that we use very often. It's one of those words I'm like, I, gotta, I actually kind of had to look this one up and go, what are we talking about here with meekness? And I think it's really interesting. Meekness is essentially an attitude or quality of heart whereby a person is willing to accept or submit without resistance to the will and desire of someone else. Meekness is a chance for us, even though we are powerful in some way, to, to submit ourselves 
to others or to the kingdom or to the king to put ourselves below, right, other people. I think we run into a, a problem when we start talking about submission. And this kind of came up when we were talking about uh, women in Bible and women in ministry in our podcast. We talked about submission a little bit. And I had more conversations about submission and why the Bible says that women should submit to their husbands and is that like offensive. And we got the wrong idea about submission. First of all, the Bible says that all of us as believers should submit to one another. So let's just stop there for a second. We're all called to be in submission to each other. Okay? Submission is not a bad thing. Jesus was in submission to his disciples, to, to evil authorities that he allowed himself to be in submission to, to the Father's will. He was in submission all over the place to all kinds of things, both good and bad. Put himself underneath, below other people and other situations and was submitted to all of those things. We have to get past this idea. And this word meek, it's connected to this idea of strength under control. And the way that it was used back then was actually, it had like this, this connection to the idea of like taming a horse. Okay. They would have like these war horses that they would say were meek. They were strong and had all this power, but they were submitted and tamed by their master, right? That when you tamed this horse, this wild horse, and turned it into this war horse who could be strong in chaos, right? Who could be submitted to the master and listening to the master's commands in the midst of chaos, that that was actually what meekness is. That meekness was taking whatever strength that you have and submitting it to your master and listening to their voice in the midst of chaos. If you find yourself in a chaotic world, in a chaotic life, and you feel out of control, the best place for you to, do, to be is to be in submission to the master and listening to his voice in the midst of that chaos. That's what meekness is. That's what it looks like. So Jesus says, hey, this is completely different than what the zealots are looking for. They want to start a battle. We're talking about strength under control. We're talking about submission to a king, and we're asking you to be meek. Those are the ones that are going to inherit the earth. The blessed are the meek. Happy are the meek. The whole are the meek. Imagine the zealots going, this isn't working for me, right? We have to create a battle, a battle plan here. We have to start a fight, a war. And, uh, and Jesus is like, no, there's a gentleness to this. There's a submission to this. And this is what it looks like to be part of my, my kingdom. So blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And there's like no room here for like apathy, which I I think is one of the hardest things for us in our culture, is that there's just a lot of like leeway for a lot of different ideas, right? And for us to kind of just be okay with everything that's going on and just say, hey, your truth, your truth, my truth, my truth. Like, I'm not sure I'm like passionate about this thing. So I'm just not going to fight with you. I'm, just, I'm not going to be passionate about it. I'm not going to put effort into my own relationship with God. I'm not going to read my Bible, pick that up, have any discipline in my life. I'm not going to pray because, you know, like I'm not even sure if prayer is going to do anything. And so we just have this apathetic lifestyle. And Jesus is saying, no, if you want to follow me and you want to be part of this kingdom, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Think about a time when you were like so hungry or so thirsty and then you had that meal afterwards, right? There was a time in college where like for a, a class, they asked us to like fast. It was like, I know you do weird stuff in like pastor school, right? And they were like, yeah, you got you to gotta fast. You got to learn how to fast. So like we fasted and like I was kind of playing around with fasting and this idea of like, you know, when you are hungry, you'll, you'll go and like pray, right? Instead of 
worry about the, the physical hunger you have, you'll spend some of that on spiritual time. It was a, a, a spiritual disciplines class I was taking. So I, I, I fasted first like one day a week, and then I found out it was really easy for me. Like I could go a really long time without eating. Some of you guys are like that. You get busy with stuff, and you don't even care, and you just don't care about eating, and you forget to eat. And I was like that. And so I was like, well, let me just go a little further. And so then like, I decided to do like a couple-day fast. And then I got to the point, it was like three days into the fast, and I'm like, I can keep going with this. Like, so I just went like five days, and then I went like seven days. It was just like a seven-day fast. I wasn't sure if I was going to do that when I started, but that's what I did. And I remember at like the end of seven days, I started to feel like real, real hungry. However, when you come off a seven-day fast, you can't just go eat what you want. Uh, this is like something that you got to learn. You got to like bring your body back into this. So I went to our cafeteria at, our, at my college and I asked them for like broth because they're supposed to just kind of start with like soup and stuff and just kind of eat just a little bit. And I remember thinking like this was the most flavorful broth. It was just cafeteria, probably out of a box. Somebody warmed it up in the back. But I'm like, this is the, this is the best thing I've ever eaten in my life, right? Like but God is, you know, Jesus is laying this out like, hey, people who get my kingdom, man, they are hunger and thirsting for righteousness. This word righteous could also be translated justice. They want rightness in the world. They don't want to just create it in themselves. They want to create it in the world around them. Rightness or justice. They're hungering and thirsting. They're not apathetic. They're passionate. They're engaged. They're going for it. They're seeking. They're pursuing be a good name for church. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. This is uh, from Matthew chapter 9. When the Pharisees saw this, another story about the Pharisees, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. God is much more interested in us being merciful the way he has been merciful to us. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And that pure in heart, uh, literally, if, if you were to like, try to understand what this, what this means, it means those who are bare and open, authentic before God those who don't hide anything, who are clear and open about what is going on in their lives with God, that don't pull their punches, that say what they need to say and do what they need to do and be open and bare in front of God. The pure in heart are the ones who will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. When we think about peace, we think about it in multiple ways. Yes, we're called to make peace with God in our own relationships. That's through salvation. I hope that if you come here and the one thing that you hear, if you're seeking after who Jesus is, is that you need to make peace with Jesus. That that's the first step for you as a believer. That's called salvation. But then also, we try to help others make peace with God. We call this evangelism. We're sharing our faith with other people and we're saying to them, hey, make peace with God, right? Or sometimes we have to make peace with others that we've offended. It's called reconciliation. Or we would go to somebody and say, hey, forgive me and let me forgive you and let's put this relationship back together. Let's make sure that we're reconciled to each other, right? Or the last idea of peace, peace between others where we mediate between two other people. We're called to be peacemakers, to create peace in all four of these ways, in salvation, in evangelism, in reconciliation, in mediation. Blessed are those 
who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For it is the same way, for it is the same way they persecute the prophets who came before you. And I want you to know discipleship, what Jesus gets to at the end here, discipleship always costs you something. It's never free. I will never stand up here and say, blessed are you if you are healthy. Blessed are you if you are wealthy. Blessed are you if people look at you and they, you know, they have much respect for you. Blessed are you if everything in your life is going really well. Blessed are you if you're beautiful or you're handsome or you're smart or you're amazing. Good for you. It's not the kingdom Jesus is talking about. He's saying, in my kingdom, humility is going to be on display every single one of the disciples that I have, and it will cost them something to follow me. There'll be a cost. There'll be a cost in your relationships. There'll be a cost at your workplace. There'll be a cost in just about everything that you do because if you're a disciple of mine, you're going to look like a weirdo. You're going to do weird stuff. You're going to be weird around people. And you're going to look way different than the culture. I mean, the culture around us has just turned and gone completely in the opposite direction of anything Jesus would ever want us to do. And yet we continue to follow culture and want to look just like it. And Jesus is like, no, my kingdom is upside down. It's backwards. It's completely the opposite. I'm interested in people who are humble and meek and peacemakers and who care about righteousness and justice. Like, this is what my kingdom looks like. We're not starting our war with Rome. We're not overthrowing the authorities that we're going to come underneath and submit to the authorities, the evil authorities that God has given us. We're going to pray for our leaders. We're going to love enemies. We're going to do things that look completely different than the world around us. Like, it's a radical form of discipleship that Jesus is calling all these people to. And you can imagine him calling the disciples to it, right? And, you, and then the crowd who's sitting on the fence who's just outside and just kind of listening, just kind of there paying attention. And he's kind of inviting them, drawing them in and saying, you can become a disciple too, but it will cost you something. It costs the prophets something. It costs Jesus something. It costs all the disciples something. It'll cost you something too. Discipleship is not free. It always costs us something, but it's worth it. And I think a lot of times when we're like young, we're like rebellious. We have a rebellion streak. We want to go out on our own. We want to make our own way. We find ourselves being rebels in how we do things. We do things that our parents tell us not to do. We kind of go out and, and kind of sow our wild oats. I don't even know what those are, but we sow them. And we make bad decisions. We make life-altering decisions, and then we kind of pull back from that, and we go, yeah, maybe not that again. Let's not do that. I think what's interesting is that today I feel like sometimes as like a 42-year-old man, if I'm just being perfectly honest with you, I feel like what's incredibly rebellious in our culture today in my mid-40s or my early 40s is someone who is a real adult, who loves Jesus, who makes decisions like that look like his kingdom who like loves his wife, who like serves his family, who cares about his children, who's like responsible with like areas of their life so that other people can benefit from it, who's generous, 
who gives away the things that they have and leverages the stuff that they have, who like lives a life that looks different than the rest of the world, which, whose values are on display that look different than the rest of the world, who makes decisions about everything in my hands that I'm able to control myself or able to give back to God and let him use, making those decisions makes me a rebel in the society that I live in. That's the rebellion that Jesus is starting here. Like, I want you to be a weirdo. I want you to be humble and meek. And I want you to serve others and be submissive. And I want you to use your power to help other people, to create justice in the world, to look for righteousness. And I think some of us, we would read this and we'd say, this is really good stuff, this is really good, I'm going to put this on a pillow or hang it on the wall or I'm going to make my backdrop on my phone, the buzzer or the meek. But we have to do it. God is calling us into doing it. And so as we finish today, I know I talked about this last week. I gave you homework. Hey, where's the place that you're struggling? Could you share that with somebody? This week, I want to give you homework. Which one of these blessed are statements is the one that you struggle with the most? Which one? Your, your rage gets in the way of your meekness. Your, your ego gets in the way of your humility. Your, where is it that you struggle with seeing Jesus' kingdom come to fruition in your own life? Where do you struggle having a, a way to make this a reality in your life and in the lives of other people? And then again, I want you to share that with another person. I want you to have a conversation that goes beyond surface level to a depth that allows you to share something about what's really happening in your life. Yes, it could be husband and wives, could be friends, could be whatever. It could be in your small groups. I don't care. The idea is, are we actually going to do this? And where are we struggling with this? And who can help us with this? And how can we go move on with it? The cool thing about the guys event yesterday was that we had guys at tables sharing about stuff that they would never be talking about. I mean, you go hang out in someone's garage, right? And you're working on a project or something. And like the, the conversation never goes to like, hey, how's your, your parenting going? Or, hey, how's your relationship with Jesus? When was the last time you opened your Bible? Like, hey, what's your sin life? What's your deepest, darkest sin, and why can't you stop, right? Like, it never, it never goes to that. So where is it here that you're struggling, and who could you share that with this week? Let me pray for us as we close our time today. Jesus, help us be the kind of people that don't just look at your word and then turn away and forget what it looks like. Help us not just be the kind of thing where we say, this is, that was great, I'm glad I learned that, but we don't apply. Help us to be submissive and meek, and full of humility. God, able to make peace and to serve justice and righteousness in this world. And I pray, God, that as we as individuals grab hold of the kingdom that you've called us to live out, that this church would begin to make that kind of difference in the world as each one of us begins to live out this life you've called us to. God, help us to be the disciples that understand there's a cost to this and we're ready to pay it. And Jesus, we pray that you would just be honored by what we say and what we do and how we process all of this and how we make you the king of our lives. Thank you for coming and bringing this upside down, backwards, ridiculous kingdom in the eyes of the world, but one that works so well for us and gives us such a rich life and gives us so much to be passionate about and to be active in and to be on mission for. God, I pray that this wouldn't just be words, that it would lead to change in our lives and our actions, the way that we live. Your kingdom come, your will be done on this earth as it is in heaven through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.